0: Father, we give you grateful praises this morning, and we ask, O Lord, that you would be present with us according to your promise by the Holy Spirit in the preaching and proclamation of your Holy Word. Apply it to our hearts and nourish our souls with it in Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, I'm going to ask you this morning to open your Bibles with me once again to the book of Proverbs, penned by the great... King Solomon, renowned in his own time for his wisdom, people came far and wide to hear the wisdom of Solomon, most famously the Queen of Sheba. If you go back to the Gospel of Matthew, he actually refers to that, and of course, in the books of 1st King and other places. And so I'm going to read to you this morning from chapter 3. I'm going to read the first 13 verses. Verse 1 through 13, chapter 3, the book of Proverbs, so turn there with me now. And so Solomon writes, my son, do not forget my law. Let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, and so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths." Do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord nor detest his correction for whom the Lord loves he corrects. Just as a father, the son in whom he delights, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Oh, Lord, let us be happy this morning, Lord. Let us be joyful as the byproduct of having internalized godly wisdom for our lives and for your honor. And we pray in Jesus' name, as always. Amen. If there was ever a memory verse in the Bible, it's got to be Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and He shall direct your paths. Now, I wasn't really clear what I was going to preach on this morning. I had a couple of things. When you start reading the Bible, you, you get into... In midweek and you're reading something really potent you go and you say that'll preach and people will love to hear That exegeted from the pulpit on sunday morning and I had a couple of places I was going to preach from romans 8 this morning. I love romans 8 and I but something happened during the week I had already looked over these verses We had talked about them also in um in the friday prayer meeting and a couple people brought them up, right? and um You see this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Well, Karen and I, as we often do, pulled into Trukey's parking lot, the local grocery store, and we parked behind a car that had a bumper sticker that said, believe in yourself. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, the Bible says, don't believe in yourself, believe in God. God. Trust in him. But here's, here's how it was written. I pulled right up behind this car, and there was the bumper stick. She had a lot of bumper stickers. I say she. I'm assuming it was a she. Such a chauvinist. But anyway, I pull, in, I pull in, and it said, believe in yourself. But the B in believe, B-E, was big. And the U in yourself was big. So it also said, be you. Great advice. Now, I can only imagine why some random person thinks it's his or her mission in life to get everyone along their way to believe in themselves. But somebody thinks that's important. And I suppose it's, it's seen as some sort of altruistic contribution to a society of self-doubters or low self-esteem sufferers. But I have to tell you, to me it's just a, a, a trite, uninspired little cliché. And I'm going to belabor this somewhat this morning because I honestly don't know how you apply it. Now, p- believe me, I get why you believe in yourself to some extent, and I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about that this morning. But I thought, you know, printing these things on cars and tattooing them on your body, I thought that had maybe gone out of style, that kind of trite, uninspired things, but I was wrong once again. There seems to be no end to our society's appetite for banality. You know what banality is? It's Well, it's a synonym for cliche or trite, just easy sort of things to say. Nobody really argues with them. And I should have known that we still had an appetite for this kind of thing, because news media loves to sprinkle. You ever notice the news media wants to tell you these cute little stories in between the fires, and the murders, and the stabbings, and the shootings? And they like to sprinkle in stories about kittens. All right. They sprinkle in between their race baiting and their fear mongering every few segments, these little heartwarming snippets. This is so transparent to me. It's the it's the hope of the news anchor that the audience will look past his personal bias and his liberal vitriol and see his essential humanity. As if we're all supposed to see the footage of the veteran surprise return home from overseas or the doggie covering the sleeping baby with a blanket and forget that you just cherry-picked your pet facts to distort the truth behind terrorist groups attacking Israel or policemen being defamed and harassed for doing their job. I'm supposed to forget all that. This is a nice little story of a doggie. Shameless, trite, banality, is the news media's way of pleading for their own humanity in the hope of increased ratings. They're such nice people. Friends, frankly, I don't need CNN or Fox News to warm my heart. I'm going to tell you right now, it's a difficult thing to warm my heart. I don't think I have heartstrings, per se. I don't really know what they are, but I don't think I have them because none of this stuff works on me. I see right through it. I'm way too cynical to have my heart warmed by serving up such unoriginal ditties to feed our felt-need American desires. And this is where all this pablum-like belief in self comes from, friends. You know, on the way to church, I see a sign on a tree in a front yard. It says, pray for hope and work for change. Pray for hope and work for change. But my mind goes right to hope in what and change to what? Wouldn't that matter is just hope, okay, you can hope in anything, and just change. I don't care what you change to, just change. I don't like the way it is, change it. I don't know what these things mean. My guess is that if we're sensitive enough, we're just supposed to know what these things mean. If we've listened to the right voices, the need for hope and change are all very clear to us. You know, I see the, I see the other sign, I think I've told you about it says hate has no home here. How do I know that person hates me when I see that sign? But I do know. It's my guess that the bumper sticker person knows the tree sign person and that they both know all these things intuitively that I don't know. And what's even more certain is that this whole felt need society is nothing new. It apparently is very old. Solomon wrote this 3,000 years ago. Apparently he had to wrestle with it back then too. And he had to tell people, stop believing in trivial things. Trust in God. God took the trouble to reveal himself in so many ways, and we want to discard that for a trite little bumper sticker that makes us look wise to somebody. It's as if our whole world is treating us like Glinda the Good Witch treated Dorothy. Do you remember this? Dorothy had the ruby slippers all along. Don't look at me like that, you do know the story, right? She had the power to go home just by clicking her heels and chanting her felt needs to the munchkin gods. She could have gone home all along. She could have chanted, click the hills, believe in yourself, pray for hope, work for change. There's no place like home. She she could have done this. And then the scarecrow. Friends, the scarecrow is the smartest, brainless person in modern folklore. He's the only one that asks the right question in the story. And so he says to the good witch, why didn't you just tell her in the first place? It's like Joe Friday used to say, just the facts, ma'am. That's what he was saying to Glinda the Good Witch. And just like our condescending media, Glinda said, you wouldn't have believed me. Now, if I was Dorothy, you know what I would have said then? I would have said, I would have believed you, but I'll never believe you again. In the spirit of the age, channeling Jack Nicholson and a few good men... She was saying, you can't handle the truth. Well, apparently Solomon thinks you can. You can handle the truth. And let me tell you the truth. It ain't about you. It's about God. He sets the agenda. And he's not trying to figure out our agenda so he can help us. He's trying to help us by helping us figure out his agenda. So let's get to the direction and the warning of the verse. It directs us away from our own felt needs, doesn't it? It directs us away from sappy, sentimental self-reliance in the spiritual realm. And I'm going to illustrate this so you never forget it. It points us directly to God as a right response upon encountering him. And so he writes, do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord. Now, we belabored this somewhat last week. You know, the, the Proverbs are repetitive. That's why I went from chapter 1 to chapter 3. I can sort of do 2 and 3 in the same way. And that's a good thing, that the, the Bible is repetitive. Uh, Peter said in First in, in Peter, I speak not so much to inform you, but to remind you. And I'll never stop reminding you. In other words, he, he says the same thing over and over, because he wants to make sure we have it. So God might just as well have said, it's just not always about you. Friends, you know, God has a universe to run, and if he wasn't so all-powerful, I would tell you, he's really very busy. <laughs> um, and so he sends his prophet to tell us, it's not about you, it's about me. I used to say that to my kids. <laughs> I think you should say that to your kids. Kids need to know it ain't all about them, Dad. You know, I always think that we get the prayers every, every year. They come around, oh, pray for so-and-so finals in college. I'm like, I'll tell you what, I'm praying for the father that's paying the bill that that kid can go there and study, and that's a great luxury. How about that prayer? And so he sends us pr- his prophet to tell us, it's not all about you. You are the creature. I am the creator. What is best for you is to know my will for you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. The prophet has no confidence that anyone will benefit by a religious belief in self. And I have to tell you that such things as belief in self, they really need to be explained to me. What does it mean? I'm not sure why we have to work at a thing that seems to me would be so automatic. You remember Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself? Friends, the saying takes for granted a certain level of self-love. If you despised yourself and loved your neighbor as yourself, you would despise your neighbor. It's a natural thing to have self-love, a recognition of self-worth, a certain amount of self-esteem. And even Christ recognizes that. There's a certain amount of natural love of self, which we must allow, comes with a belief in our own essential worth and goodness. And there must be a residual level of trust in our own judgments, or we wouldn't make judgments. We'd be paralyzed from making any decisions. But we're not. If I never saw that bumper sticker, I would still know how to decide things and trust in myself. It's a natural thing. I don't need an urging for that. It's this belief in... As far as that goes, I'm with you about self-belief. But what does belief mean in the religious sense? Does belief mean believe in your own existence? You know, cogito ergo sum type of belief. Does belief mean I can do all things through me who strengthens me? How far do I take this? Does believe mean I will never leave me nor forsake me? Does it mean hallowed be my name? How far do I take this dubious belief in self, friends? Is the doctrine of self-belief based upon the revelation that in the beginning I created me in my image? Where is the Lord God in all this slathering self-belief? You see, once we go just a little past... The initial chill of the saying and the initial thrill of seeing ourselves as deep and inspirational there's really very little to such sayings as these, and I pity the fool that believes a hearty reliance on self will be there to rescue him in the hard places of life. You know I remember nine eleven peace long time ago 20, 20 years ago. I remember there were TV commercials, so-called public service announcements to try to teach the viewing public not to live in fear. These segments were filled with regular people living their lives. Does anyone remember any of these? I remember one Swedish girl. I used to kind of make fun of this. It's one Swedish girl on roller skates. She'd be twirling in a skate park. And she stopped and looked at the camera and said, I'm going to fight terrorism by being myself. And I thought that was... I got why they said that. Don't live in fear. Be yourself, all of this. But I thought... I'm gonna fight terrorism by being myself. Can you imagine Al Qaeda going, let's get out of here? The Swedish girl's being herself. What do we do? <laughs> I thought it was trite then, and I still do, but at least there was an element of resistance to imposed fears upon society. Where were these announcements during the COVID era? Just be yourself. How, how about this? Just express yourself. You weren't allowed to. All of a sudden, be yourself didn't rescue you in the hard place. wasn't about that, was it? Friends, I'm going to say what I always say to you. The church has a responsibility, and they don't have to take our rights if we're willing to give them up. And you don't need a First Amendment to say nice, agreeable things. You need a First Amendment to say things that the powers that be don't like. That's what it's for. Let's not forget that. So where were these announcements of be yourself during the COVID era? We were made to feel nervous at best, petrified at worst. Where is this stiff upper lip lip, look the fear in the face philosophy? Where was that? It was gone, but a few voices. In fact, don't look the public in the face. Don't even dare to hide your face and show the symbol of your fear on your face. And don't dare resist the mandate or we'll really show you what to fear. There are preachers in prison in Canada as I speak for doing what I'm doing right now and saying what I'm saying right now. Do two things, pray for Canada and thank God we're not Canada yet. So apparently the belief in self-religion only works against Muslim terror and not media terror. Remember when the drug companies were the enemy? Do you remember that? Everybody was going to get the drug companies under control. Now they're our only hope. What is this? Take the drug. Forget belief in self. Believe in media and medicine and thou shalt be saved. There's a whole religion here is what I'm pointing out. Imagine saying I'm going to fight COVID by being myself, by living my day-to-day life undaunted by the enemy knocking at the door waiting to infect me at any moment. (laughs) Throw courage to the wind and hunker down alone in your city flat and don't dare come out till we tell you and start to get the message that we may never tell you. Where's this great lifeline of, of self-rescue in the plague years. Friends, let's face it. We can't d- rely on ourselves. We have to rely and trust in God. Solomon was right. He couldn't be wrong. He was inspired by the God-breathed word of the Holy Spirit. Now, why would I make all these connections? Well, it's because I have a sincere suspicion that the folks who herald this phantasm of belief in self are the same bunch that bow down to media fears and the spirit of the age religion that still rages all around us. And I submit to you, friends, there's no such thing as belief in self. Remember, friends, false gods are no gods at all, right? And a false god is a fickle God. He changes with the wind. He changes with fashion. Remember Paul, who wrote on the subject? He said, No longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Don't be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. That's not who we are. Solomon said these words... 900 years before Christ walked the earth, and they're still pertinent today to every soul. Trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. Friends, wisdom, real wisdom, God's wisdom, cries out in the open squares. It's available. We labored over this last week. And if you're like me, you'll never gain that wisdom from a bumper sticker or a greeting card or a Rod McEwen poem, with all due respect to Rod McEwen. God teaches a different approach to life. He said this very thing to Job. A different approach to life. God said to Job, what did he say? Remember this? Gird yourself up like a man. There's something honorable about being a man and knowing what that means to God. Gird yourself up like a man. I'll question you, he said to Job. You answer me. And so God said to him, remember Job was one of his favorites. You do know God has favorites, right? because Americans just recoil at the idea that God might have a favorite. He clearly does. He says it of Moses, he says it of David, and he shows it in the in the case with Job. So God asked Job this, "Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you commanded the morning since your days began?" Ask that of the self-believer. "Have you commanded the morning?" Where is the way to the dwelling of light? Have you an arm like God, or can you thunder with a voice like his? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor. Look on everyone who's proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Prove to me that you're God like me. And then I'll bow down to you. You may say what you like about biblical doctrine, friends, but I hardly believe that there's anything in this exchange that endorses a man's robust belief in his own personal nature and available resources. When you're in trouble, you know, nobody knows who said it, and you can look it up, and you may think you know, but, but you don't. Nobody knows who said there's no atheists in foxholes. <laughs> a lot of people have gotten credit, but I'll tell you this, there's no self-believers in foxholes. That puts you in a place where you're calling for rescue of God. Trust in the Lord, he said, with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Friends, Solomon took the advice first. If you remember, in his personal life, go back to 1 Kings, where he was a young king. His father David had died, and he inherited this dynasty, this, this empire, if you will, that was one of the greatest in its time, its enemies were at, were at bay. It was one of the wealthiest, probably the wealthiest kingdom on earth. And he was king and he was a young man. And what did he do? He went out before the Lord and he sacrificed at, a, at, a, at an altar and he bowed down before God and he said, I am just like a little babe. I have no knowledge. I don't know how to go out or to come in. And God said, ask me. I'll give you whatever you ask. And Solomon said, give me wisdom to discern good and evil to have a wise and discerning heart and God came to him and said because you asked for a wise discerning heart and did not ask for riches and did not ask for long life and did not ask for the lives of your enemies I'll give you all those things too because those come with wisdom not bumper sticker wisdom and greeting card slogans it comes with the word of God only Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Friends, ask God to direct your paths. Friends, I lived up through my 20s without knowing where I was going until I was put not on my knees, on my back, literally, and I looked up to God. I'm ready. And he kept the promise. And there's nowhere else for me to go except where God directs me. Belief in self destroys any prospect of genuine wisdom taking root in your heart and mind. It is, in fact, idolatry. Verses 7 and 8 go right along with the theme. Do not be wise in your own eyes. You know, that's a recurring theme throughout Scripture. There were times in Israel where everyone did his own thing, was wise in his own eyes, right? You see that throughout the Scripture. That's how we... That seems to be our society today. A sure sign of mass confusion... Is a growing number of experts. We have experts. Just watch a news show. They they have like I think MSNBC has like nine heads show up, as though they're really going to have a conversation with all nine. You know, there's so many experts out there, like Glinda the Goodwitch, who don't think you can handle it. Fear the Lord, depart from evil. It'll be healthy of flesh and strength of your bones. Who knew? Health to your flesh and strength to your bones. And so the writer lists the benefits of a life lived with robust trust in God. Now there's benefits, health, well-being, strength. Note, friends, fear of God is closely aligned with faith in God. You know, fear has fallen on hard times as fear of God. We don't like that anymore. We don't like to fear things or admit we do. We all do, but we don't like to admit we do. There are two forces that have been maligned by many a preacher... Who would have us believe that their polar opposites, fear and faith, have one or the other? Not so. There's an old adage, perhaps you've heard it, it goes, fear knocked at the door, faith answered, no one was there. Have you heard that? No one's ever heard that. Donnie's heard. Faith knocked at the door, or rather, fear knocked at the door, faith answered, no one was there. In other words, faith scared fear away. Um, Friends, it should go like this. I have to fix these sayings so that they're doctrinally correct. It should say, fear of God knocked at the door, faith answered, God came in. That's what it ought to say. I would be hard-pressed to try to make a linear connection between faith and fear as though one precedes the other, friends, but fear of God begets faith. I was desperately fearful for my life in the hands of God and cried out to him, and he gave me faith as a gift so I would know how to hear from him. And I still have both. Faith, fear of God begets faith, and faith rightly grounded begets fear rightly grounded. No, we're not bundles of fear running around scared all the time. That isn't what it's all about. Perfect love casteth out fear. He also wrote, the Apostle John, it's an informed faith that perfects an informed fear. Friends, if I don't sin against God, I had nothing to fear. What am I fearing? Jesus said, only fear God. He didn't say, don't fear God. He said, don't fear man. You know, the fear of man is cowardice, and the fear of God is true courage. That's how it works, biblically. And the Lord himself taught us this. It would be a biblical absurdity to assert that faith in God drove out fear of God. They've got to both be their friends. They're sisters. In fact, they're Siamese twins, connected, inseparable, And the child of God is guided by both of these spiritual forces. Fear the Lord, he says, depart from evil. And so the first benefit of trust in God over self emerges. The first benefit, what is it? Depart from evil. You know, without faith in God, without fear of God, you haven't got the ability to depart from evil in a way that pleases God. Departing from evil is something we do for God only to find out it's beneficial to us. Trust in self tolerates evil. It tells us we can handle it. That's what trust in self does. I can take a little temptation. I'm not worried about it. Jesus said, deliver us not into temptation, not get in there and play around with it. Trust in God casts it out as a malignant stain on our soul that defiles it. And then he says, it will be health to your flesh. What do you suppose he means by, it will be health to your flesh? You know, preachers are always trying to parse the promise of physical benefits from spiritual disciplines because it seems like, God doesn't keep the promise all the time. I obey God all the time and it hasn't been health to my flesh. I'm not healthy. Is that really the case? And so because of this, we can allow for the possibility that complete faith and reliance upon God may not erase every physical anomaly that we had. It may not make the crippled man walk or the blind man have seeing eyes, but the turning away from sin and sinful desires imparts a new freshness to our being. The first thing to recognize is that biblical references to the flesh, friends, are not physical references. Your mind, your will, and your emotions are what's referred to as the flesh in the scripture. If the writer wanted to make a reference to the physical body, he would have said body and not flesh. So the first great benefit of trusting God is the wholesome well-being of body and spirit. And I think we can rejoice in the promise as stated. I don't need to parse it. Then he makes this statement, points a little more to the physical. It'll be strength to your bones. Fear of the Lord will be health to your flesh, strength to your bones. An older version wrote it this way. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Solomon speaks here to basic things without which other blessings can't be enjoyed. Basic things. Matthew Henry wrote this. It's a um, wonderful uh, Puritan commentator that he was. Henry wrote... For our encouragement, thus to live in the fear of God, it is here promised that it shall be as serviceable even to the outward man as our necessary food. Obeying God, according to the theologian, according to the prophet, is as serviceable to your flesh as as your food is. Obeying God is as important to your nourishment, your physical well-being, as your necessary food, he wrote. He wasn't afraid to put that together. It'll be nourishing, he writes. It will be strengthening. He writes, the prudence, temperance, and sobriety, the calmness, the composure of mind, and the good government of the appetites and passions which religion teaches tend very much not only to the health of the soul, but to a good habit of body, which is very desirable, and without which our other enjoyments in this world are insipid. You know what insipid is? tasteless. So the wisdom of God helps us physically, mentally, spiritually, all of these things. We are whole in the sight of God. And the theologian said it well. Verses 9 and 10, honor the Lord with your possessions. All right, we see some of the benefits, right? We have the power to turn away from evil. We have with a benefit of health and well-being and a freshness of spirit. Now he gives us a, a duty. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruit of all your increase. What's the first fruit, friends? In ancient Israel, there was the feast of first fruits. As, as you know, we belabored this a lot in the Easter celebration because Christ, our first fruits, rose on the, first, uh, on the third day, right? So Christ is called the first fruits. Now, why is he called that? Because the first fruit of the crop of the early produce from the crop that the, that the farmers take and they give it to the priest and the priest offers it to God. It's the best, it's the first. You don't dare eat it yourself. It belongs to God. And if you give it to God and you honor him with the first increase of your possessions, he blesses the whole harvest. That's the deal. That's the deal. So honor the Lord with your possession and with the first fruits of all your increase. You know, the, the Israelites gave their tithe once a year, really. Right? Because you didn't know when you were a farmer, you didn't know how much was the tenth until it was all counted, right? Paul said, gather it up once a week, the first day of the week. But um, he gives us the benefits here. Honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. How are your barns doing? Are your barns full? Come on, we live in Lakeville. People must have barns. I got one. If not, we'll have to come out. we have to get you some barns. Yeah, You've got to fill them with the plenty, with the produce of the field, the produce of the year, and your vats will overflow with new wine. Anyone have any vats? <laughs> get some vats. You want to be blessed? Remember the, remember the lady in the Book of Kings and, and uh, Elijah said, just go out and keep getting, keep getting empty vessels. God can't use a full vessel. It needs an empty vessel. And he kept filling it with the oil, and she sold the oil, and, and she uh, paid off her debt. It's a great miracle, right? Don't run out of empty vessels. and You won't run out of blessing for God to bless you with. Friends, trust brought you the increased in the first place. And with increase of possessions comes increase of honor. Commit the first fruits of your increase to the God, which is the cause of Christ and the ministry of the church in our time. Every preacher and commentator takes this verse directly to the tithe. That's where he brings it. Matthew Henry brought it there. Calvin brings it there. All the uh, usual suspects bring it there. If you do not trust God with your tithe, you do not trust him with all your heart. Have you ever considered that? The first fruit of our increase is the tithe, and the tithe is the tenth. This is a difficult concept for modern man, and I don't talk about tithing much. Um, I should, but pastors tend not to do that when their people are basically generous anyway. Um, It's a difficult concept for modern man and for suspicious men who presume an ecclesiastical plot to pry money out of their hands, right? We're suspicious of that. Luther said this, he said, God separated our hands into fingers so money could slip through easily. Generous man that he was. I've always told you that if we do not invest in our ministries and institutions, we'll not have them. And let me say this, I know who you are who will accuse me of being a prosperity preacher. I know who you are, who are going to accuse me, but I'm going to teach you this morning. And the same will accuse the tither of conforming to an archaic Old Testament legal system, right? So I'll be very careful here and see if you accuse the Lord of the same thing, right? I don't write this stuff. I just read it. And so it's Luke six thirty-eight. Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, press down, shaken together and running over, will be put into your bosom. What got all that giving into you to get started? You gave. Honor God with your possessions. For with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You know, people think that Jesus taught against the tithe because he went to the Pharisees and accused them of legalism. He said, you tithe mint and anise and cumin, and you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. And then he said, you ought to have done the one without leaving the other undone. In other words, you do both. You tithe, and then you consider the weightier matters of the law as well, not just the, not just the um, legalistic matters of the law. You do it with your whole heart. God loves a cheerful giver. That's Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three, by the way. Paul wrote this. He said, but I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. I'm going to tell you, when Karen and I first got married, I know I tell you a lot of these stories, but when we first got married, we were living in New York City, and we decided to move back here, which was, I'm really glad we did. I just had enough of the city. I like the city to visit. I just don't want to live there. And we came back here, but that meant we left our jobs, and we didn't have a job, but they gave us a house. I don't know how the bank gave us a house. We didn't have a job to put down, but they did, and we went right into not being able to afford it, which I've told you many times. We started a business, and then we realized Karen did the taxes. She still does, by the way. Um, She did the taxes, and she realized that first year we owed $10,000 in taxes that seemed like a million dollars because it was a million dollars. And we said, what are we going to do? There's no way we can pay $10,000 in taxes. We, I, I couldn't even believe they would ask. You know, Daniel's a contractor now. He's a, he's a lawyer. He has his own business. And Karen was telling me the other day, he was saying to her, I can't believe what I have to pay in taxes. And, and he said to her, now I know why Dad was always mad. <laughs> <laughs> I was always mad. I'm still mad about taxes. But Karen and I decided ten grand was just too much. We'll get an accountant. Accountant is a person who's trained in subverting the tax code. Right? But anyways, we brought the accountant in, and she came in, and she was $90 an hour, which we also didn't have. (laughs) And she came in, and she looked it over, and she went, are you people Jehovah's Witnesses? And we said, why would you ask that? Because you give away 10% of your money, and you don't have it to give. And we were like, no, we're not Jehovah's Witnesses, but we're kind of like Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> I didn't know what to say to her to give her the whole Baptist theology. But I said, no, we, we just feel that we're really, we believe that it's, it's beneficial to us. And she said, well, it's not. You can't afford to do it, so don't do it. She said, you can't afford me, so don't call me anymore. She said, I'm going to teach you how to do this and do it. And she did it, and we owed $5,000. I didn't have the five either, but that was better, right? <laughs> Right away, tithing benefited me five grand. That's how I look at the ledger. But no, somehow we came up with it, somehow we stayed out of prison, and we've managed to get here today, and I believe it has always blessed us to honor the Lord with the tithe. Matthew Henry wrote this, he said, those that do good with what they have shall have more to do good with. If we make our worldly estate serviceable to our religion, we shall find our religion very serviceable to the prosperity of our worldly affairs. They go hand in hand, right? And then he writes, We mistake if we think that giving will undo us and make us poor. No, giving for God's honor will make us rich. What we gave, we have, he wrote. It's like a spiritual law in the universe or something, friends. That's all I can tell you but I've, you know, Pastor Ken used to say, don't worry about giving too much. God has a bigger shovel than you. I don't know exactly what that meant, but it's, it's the same sort of relationship. He used to say, you can't outgive God. Ken gave 30% of all he had. He was a wealthy man and people would always say, oh, well, no wonder he gives so much. He's wealthy. It was like, he doesn't look at it that way. He says, I'm wealthy because I give so much to God. And he did it because his father before him did it and they were a set of wealthy businessmen who was also our pastor at the time. And he was my mentor, and I followed after him with that. I don't give 30, but 10, as he said, and I believe is a blessed minimum. So commit the first fruit of the increase to God, and you reap the benefit of the exchange. But do it cheerfully. Friends, don't do it grudgingly. If you can't do it with a good spirit before God, don't do it at all. And he says, "'So your bonds will be filled with plenty, "'and your vats will overflow with new wine.'" So new wine is the product of this year's produce. That's what new wine is. The grapes were good this year and they made the new wine. It's being stored. It's becoming good wine. And when the first fruit of the harvest is offered to God, that is entrusted to the work of ministry, in either testament, old or new, God blesses the harvest. We should indeed see it as a privilege that we're given a hand in how God blesses. You know, we're working with God in this thing. God said through Malachi... Bring all the tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I'll not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I'll rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he'll not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts, and all nations will call you blessed for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord. God doesn't often say, prove me now in this. He doesn't often say, give me a try. You know, if you say to people, uh, you've tried everything, give Jesus a try, you, that's not preaching the gospel, all right? That's not preaching there. You don't just give Jesus a try. Well, he didn't work, you know? This other philosophy didn't work, Jesus didn't work, I'll just go to the next thing. God doesn't usually put up with that kind of foolishness, but I'm always amazed here. He goes, give me a try. Bring the tithe in. Check me out. See if I won't bless you for it. Verses 11 and 12, my son do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction for whom the Lord loves he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. Now I got to point something out here, all right? Do you find it interesting that instruction regarding a father's correction follows instruction about committing your possessions to the Lord? He just told you a hard thing. Give your possessions to the Lord. And now he's saying, don't despise the correction of the Lord. I see a connection. Surely there's a wider scope of this admonishment than simply an urging to tithe. He, he corrects us in all things, but it seems to me the passage on correction is strategically placed next to the passage on personal offerings. And so the benefits of trust in God are enumerated here. There's health and well-being. There's abundance of material blessing. There are barns filled with food and vats filled with wine. And the implication is that it's this year's harvest That has been blessed. And the faithful child of God has committed his possessions as a token of his trust and contributed to the blessings that will be shared by all and partaken of by all in the community. And so, Paul, again to the Corinthians, writes this I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality that now at the same time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack in the Christian community. He's talking to the local church here. He talked a lot to the Corinthians about the wealth class within the church, and he taught them how to relate to one another. And then he confirms the concept with an Old Testament adage that says, it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Do you remember that? It was talk about the manna, when the manna was spread out on the land. You couldn't keep it, you couldn't store it up. You know, you couldn't hire a bunch of guys, get me some extra manna, I'll store it up, I'll sell it. You couldn't do that. It would be eaten with worms. It only lasted the one, the one day, right? Uh, it, lasted two, well, it lasted two days, yeah. You had to go out and get it each day. That's why we go to Trukies all the time. We believe you should go out every day and get the manna. But. So now we're given another benefit of trusting God, godly chastening. That's a benefit, friends. Uh, children, when your, when your fathers tell you to do something, that's a blessing from God. That's not a burden put on you. To disturb your plans. It's a blessing from God. It's as a father to a son. It's the passing down of wisdom from elder to younger. From God to the children of God. Receiving the chastening of the Lord is the token of genuine trust. I won't go there now, but go to Hebrews chapter 12 and read about this. Trusting in God is the emblem of leaning on God and not on your own understanding of truth. Don't assume you got it figured out. Go to the word go to the elders, go to your brothers in Christ. And it's not simply spiritual or doctrinal truths he's talking about, but practical truths, personal truths as well. A loving father corrects his children, and a father who withholds correction withholds his love, according to Scripture. You can't possibly love a child without correcting him. There's another proverb which says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. I taught this to my children, and I remember I asked Daniel once in public, I said, how do you know your father loves you? And he says, because you hit me. <laughs> Put me in a tough spot. And I said, that's true, son, but we've got to find another way of saying this. <laughs> love does not mean tolerating evil. Paul wrote, love does not rejoice in iniquity. Love rejoices in the truth. This rejoicing leads to another benefit of godly wisdom and divine trust. What do you suppose it is? Happiness. Happy is the man who finds wisdom. Who's done all these things. You got all the enumerated benefits. And finally, you know, the founders could only give us the pursuit of happiness. God can give us the happiness. He can give us the actual thing. I like the freedom of pursuing it, right? But I know where it comes from when I have it. And I praise God. And open the word of God at your dinner table with your family and with your friends. And praise God for that moment and for that abundance that's on that table, and for that house that's keep, we had dinner the other night on the back porch, it was pouring rain, so we thank God for the shelter too, right? Happy is the man who finds wisdom, and the man who gains understanding. There's a contentment in knowing things, and in knowing that they're true because they came from God, it's not just some guy's opinion. It's not some punditry from the news media, right? It's from the heart of God to the believer in Christ. Happiness, friends, is the byproduct of wisdom. Understanding is great gain. Happy is the man who finds them. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, pour out your wisdom upon the people of God, upon the children of the earth, O Lord. If it is your will, let there be a great revival of wisdom in the land, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.